Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. Right now, we're going to be in week two of what we talked about last week was a tightrope walk. If you were here or watched last week, you know what we're talking about. We're in this series called Church and State. And the reason that we're, it's a tightrope walk for me specifically in discussing this material is because traditionally there are two topics that we're told to avoid in conversation, religion and politics. The point of this series is to combine those and talk about it. So we're going to really do a bunch of no-nos here. But the real issue, the real topic at hand are two main sets of questions that we're going to explore the first set this week and next week. So the, the first set of questions is, should Christians, should followers of Jesus engage politically and with social issues? If so, how do we go about doing that biblically? How do we go about doing that the right way? Uh, and if we're not supposed to, then what are we left to do? So we'll talk about that this week and next week specifically on how Christians should or should they engage politically. And then the final week of the series, we'll answer the last question, and that is the church as a group. Should, should the church as a group engage politically or with social issues or are those off limits for churches to talk about, to be involved with? Uh, if we are to engage, how does that look? What do we do? And if we're to stay away, then what are we left to do besides just let the culture run over us with like a Mack truck? And so that's what we're going to look at the next uh, three weeks here. Again, this week's going to be more of a, a broad discussion that will lead into next week, which next week will be by far our most practical week of the series, not even close. It's nuts and bolts, several things to look at, several things to do, how to, how to engage uh, in everyday life in political matters or social issues. And today is going to sort of set that up by looking at a broad scope of this issue, similar to last week, how did Jesus do this? And so here's what we're going to look at today. We're looking at this idea of politics being personal. So today we're going to talk about it's personal. Now, politics are personal, aren't they? Because everyone has views, and everyone believes strongly in their views. And we also believe strongly against opposing views. And that's become increasingly, as we'll talk about in just a minute, increasingly so. So politics by nature is personal. That's not necessarily a bad thing. But what happens all too often, I'm sure that you're very much aware of this, many times politics can become too personal. It can become dangerously personal. And there's a theme that we'll talk about here for just a minute about why that is. And the word we're going to use to describe this phenomenon is tribalism. What we've seen in our culture, I would say over the last 20 years or so, has become this increasing uh, idea of tribalism. So simply what that is, is it's sort of this, we, so we're all, let's just use this country, we're all Americans, right? So we all belong in this heading, this group. But what tribalism does is it splinters off everyone into little distinct groups that have their own distinct ways of thinking and their own distinct belief systems. 
And some of that's natural, you know, like geographically that makes sense. Uh, You know, we do that based on gender, race, age, religion. We splinter off into these little tribes, if you will. And we all identify typically, or we are identified within these tribes. Again, that's some, some of that's natural, some of that's normal, but the problem is it very quickly goes too far. It becomes dangerous because tribalism is not just that I belong to a certain tribe, but that I'm at war with other tribes that are not in my tribe. So what tribalism does in our culture is it, it creates this us versus them mentality, and it gets even deeper than that because not only do we think that way, but we think, well, my tribe is right and those tribes are wrong. It gets even deeper than that where we say that my tribe is good and all of those tribes are bad. One step further, you've probably seen this on social media or television or the internet, right? That my tribe is righteous and those tribes are evil. Like that, that word, I've seen that word thrown around a lot lately, evil, evil, evil. Now, There may be some truth to that, but we have to be very careful how we throw around these labels of righteous and evil. And what what caused this is things like discourse in politics is gone. Nuance in politics is gone. Compromise in politics has become a dirty word anymore. No, I can't combine this tribe idea with that tribe idea. That's wrong. I can't, you know, let a little evil infiltrate my holy, righteous way of thinking and seeing the world. Tribalism has done this. And so what this causes, unfortunately, is that politics ruins relationships. Maybe you've been witness to this or been a casualty of this. Literally, political views in friendships whether real or virtual, okay? Uh, Politics actually fractures families. People get divorced over political viewpoints. There's even, I've seen a a couple stories the last few weeks of uh, children who are adults and their older parents, they withhold their children, the grandchildren, from their grandparents because they and their parents don't align politically, I've read multiple stories the last few weeks about this. There was even an article in some publication where the author was saying, hey, I did this. I didn't want to. It hurt me. But I said, Dad, because you're voting this way, and I don't believe in that, I'm going to withhold you, my kids from you. That's what our modern politics has done. And I say modern because it hasn't always really been that way. Really, I would, again, in the last 20 years or so, we've seen a growth and really an acceleration of this faulty idea that's fracturing us as a people. And again, I say it hasn't always been that way because Thomas Jefferson, maybe you've heard of him, uh, he once said this. He said, I never considered a difference of opinion in politics, in religion, in philosophy as cause for withdrawing from a friend. But what we see here, there's an article a a couple weeks ago I saw by a man named Jonah Goldberg, and he says the reason that we have this tribalism at an accelerating rate is this idea that he called a troll addiction syndrome. Troll addiction syndrome, and this is a a pretty good way of describing what that is. He says this, quote, Each side politically has an incentive structure to pick the worst examples of the other side and say, see, this is what they're all like. So what he's saying here, what tribalism does is, again, my tribe is righteous and virtuous and good, and what we do is a faulty thing. We look at the best version of someone in our tribe, and say, well, I'm just as good as they are, when we're really probably not. 
And then what we do is look at the worst example of someone in a different tribe and say, look, all of them are like that terrible person. We equate the best to us and the worst to others, which causes this tribalism to just explode. And that's what we're seeing in our culture. Pastor and author Eugene Cho, he writes this, What seems to be increasing in our polarizing culture is not merely a desire to win an argument, but to shame, crush, or destroy the opposition. That's what we're seeing in our modern politics. I don't just want to prove that I'm right. I want to prove how terribly evil this other person is. I want to destroy them. I want to ruin their character and their reputation along the way if possible. And can I be honest? This happens on all sides of the political spectrum. And here's how we know tribalism works. Because until I said that, most of us are thinking of one particular side being at fault and the other not. Probably, aren't we? We usually think of that way. Well, whatever side, whichever side it's on, we're going to think, oh, yeah, I know, I know what he's talking about. And it, but it happens both ways or all different ways, right? It just, it just does. So this may be the norm, but it shouldn't be. And as people, especially people of faith, we are tempted on nearly a daily basis to give in to this way of thinking that is destructive, but we have to fight that urge. We're tempted to do that, to fit in, because that's how it works. That's just how things are now. i got to play the game. i got to get in the mud. i got to fight dirty, you know, but that's not really how it should be. There is a better way, but I'll be honest, it's a more difficult way. There's a better way than our normal, modern, political way of thinking and behaving and communicating, which we'll talk about next week uh, in more specifics, but we've got to choose a different way. We've got to choose a better way. And so here's what Jesus says in Matthew 5, and these are some big words here, okay? But here's what he says. We looked at a little bit last week, but we're going to dive into this idea this morning. Matthew 5, starting at verse 43, Jesus says, You've heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven, for he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you only love those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But, Jesus says, you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. This is the better way. However, it is way more difficult to pull off. It is. It's way more abnormal than what everyone else seems to do and how they seem to act and react. And again, as I mentioned, this way of Jesus almost seems unfair. Because if you think about it, okay, Jesus, why do I have to always be the bigger person? Why do I always have to fight fair? Why can't I ever hit below the belt? Why can't I behave like they do? And Jesus says, well, that's just not the better way. You can do that. You're welcome to do that. You are free to do that. But it is not the better way. Those are big words. And we look at, let's, let's look at another passage here from Jesus and look more in detail what that means. What does that actually look like? And he, Jesus uses a very famous story to illustrate this point. But let's set up the story here. Luke 10, 25. Here's what happens. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? So again, like last week, this is a trap. 
trap question. And it kind of reminds me, I don't know if you watched the Supreme Court uh, hearings this week. This is exactly what happened all week long, trying to ask a specific question in a specific way to get a specific answer that's going to put the person being asked the question in a terrible position. Okay, that's what, this is not a new thing. Okay, this has been going on for a while. And Jesus, being the genius that he is, he says this, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? So what Jesus does here is he answers a question with a question. He puts the onus back on the person asking the question. Well, you tell me. And I'll be honest, uh, some of that is, is gamesmanship. Like, I'll show you how smart I am and how great I am at this. I'm better than you are at this kind of thing. But also, it's a great way to teach. You know, I'll, I'll embarrass Jackson for a second. He's learning from home, like three days a week for school right now. Sometimes he'll ask me a question, like, hey, Dad, what's the answer to this? Right? And so instead of answering, I'll say, well, what do you think the answer is? Or how do you spell this? And I'll say, well, how do you think you spell it? So it's the same kind of thing. Good teaching moment here can be answering a question with a question, okay? So he asked the question, what do you think the man answered? He said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right? Jesus told him, do this and you will live. Here's the key part. The man wanted to justify his actions, which means he wasn't doing this. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And then, of course, Jesus goes on to tell the story of the Good Samaritan. And you probably know the story, but if not, let's quickly go through it, and then we'll look at the follow-up question and answer after the story. So Jesus tells a story in Luke 10 of a Jewish man walking between two towns, kind of in the middle of nowhere on this highway. He is beaten up by robbers and left for dead on the side of the road. Then Jesus says that a priest comes by, a a high-ranking Jewish official sees a poor Jewish man in this position, sees him, crosses to the other side of the street to avoid him, and walks away without helping him. And then a few minutes later, a temple assistant, another high-ranking Jewish official, same thing, sees this poor man bleeding, dying, robbed, naked on the street, and crosses over to the other side to avoid helping him and goes on about his business. Then Jesus says, but then a Samaritan, ooh, Samaritan. Come. Now, why is that important? Because Samaritans are one tribe, Jews are another tribe. They do not cross-pollinate people, okay? They don't get along. We'll see this in more detail here in just a minute. So this is like the evil person in the story. Now Jesus is making them the hero of the story. This wicked, evil, godless Samaritan person stops to help this Jewish person. He goes up and binds his wounds, puts him on his own donkey, takes him to an inn to have him cared for to recover. And then as he's leaving, he tells the man at the front desk there, ding, ding, rings the bell, says, hey, I'm going to start a tab. Whatever else this guy needs, I'll pay for it when I come back by. And then, so that's the story, right? The two men who should have been the good neighbor, who should have helped their own tribe member, ignored him. And then the evil other tribe person helped him. He's the hero of the story. So then Jesus says this at the end of the story. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. So Jesus makes the statement first, love your neighbor. The man asked the question, well, who is my neighbor, Jesus? I love all my neighbors. But Jesus says really two things here. One, everyone is your neighbor. Secondly, even your enemies are your neighbor. So he's, he's echoing what he already said in, in Matthew 5 to love your enemies. He's saying it here, love them. 
They are your neighbors. You may be in different tribes. You may have different belief systems. You may have different political views, different religious views, but they're your neighbor, and you're to love them and care for them as if they were a member of your own tribe. Again, big words from Jesus. So now let's get into it even in more detail here for a few minutes. And what I want to look at, similar to last week, is how did Jesus actually do this? Because it's one thing to say, do this, But it's another thing entirely to actually do the thing you're telling someone else to do. So, is Jesus hypocritical here? Did he follow his own advice? Did he practice what he preached? We're going to look at how he engaged with three different types of people from differing tribes so that we can follow his example on how we should then engage politically and socially, especially in this tribalistic culture in which we live. Okay, so three examples from Jesus here. The first one we're going to look at, and these are all pretty well known, but I want to look at them in this lens of politics, uh, of how they are, the people that Jesus is engaging with in all three of these, how different they are and how Jesus reacted and responded to them. So this first account we're going to look at is from John 4, and it's how Jesus interacts with someone from a different religious view. How, how he has obviously his own religious views, and the person he's interacting with, they have their own and they're very personal to them. They, they're, they hold to them very strongly, and they disagree very strongly. And so we're going to see how Jesus reacted and responded to this. So John 4, verse 3, the first, 3 and 4 says this, So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Now, this goes back to the story that he just told. So this whole Samaritan Jewish thing, it's real. It's not that Jesus made up these characters to tell a really cool story. He used the characters he used in this parable because he knew that was real. Samaritans who live in this region, kind of of central in the country, this little region in central Israel, uh, it's just so perfectly placed to illustrate this point. Because they're there, you would think, oh, cool, right in the middle of the heart, you know, it's great, everybody's going to travel through there. It says here he had to pass through Samaria. John uses that word on purpose, the way Samaria's positioned. So it says here they're going from Judea to Galilee. They're going from south-north, okay? They're traveling. So in a straight line, you know, they're going to get there in like a day, day and a half if they go through Samaria. But because of the political divide in the region, most, if not all, Jewish people would take an extra day to two days to travel around the edge of Samaria to not have to even walk through this dirty place, these dirty people. They're awful. They're terrible. They're kind of half-Jewish. They're half-breeds. They look, we look down upon them. God doesn't really love them. They're not, they're not with us. They're not part of our tribe. So they would physically, literally avoid even walking into their part of the country. Okay? They, would take, they would double their time to not do that. So Jesus decided, let's just go straight through and just see what happens. So as they get there, here's what happens. We'll pick it up at verse number 7 of John 4. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, You are a Jew. And I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, If you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. So Jesus engages. He initiates the conversation, right? He asks her for water. So this, this conversation turns religious really fast, okay? Uh, and they start talking about how different 
yet similar their religions are, which is really how things become way different, is the more similar they are, the more we want to see the differences in them to prove that we're right and they're wrong. We're really close here, but oh, there's so many differences. That's kind of what's going on here. And she says, well, we, they think, Jews and Samaritans think they're worshiping the same God, but that the other tribe is worshiping a totally different God because they're worshiping in a totally different way. And they even talk about, well, Samaritans worship God at this mountain in this way, and the Jews worship God in this mountain in this way, and we're just so far apart, and that's why we hate each other. That's kind of where this conversation goes. And on top of all these differences, Jesus has a lot of advantages in this scenario, at least three of them that we can read here from this text. First, He's a man, she's a woman. Sorry, ladies, uh, in this culture, that's a huge advantage for Jesus here, okay? Uh, you know, women are not seen as equal to men in this culture. Even their, their uh, testimony is not valid in a courtroom. So he has a, a distinct advantage here over this woman. Secondly, he's a rabbi. So he can kind of pull out his, his ID and say, yeah, I'm official, I'm a rabbi, I'm a teacher, I'm an expert in Jewish law. So you're out of your league, lady, because I know the law forward and backward. I know your beliefs better than you know your beliefs, and I can point 15 ways how I'm right and you're wrong. He has this advantage innately within him. Um, and then the, the third way is what we read here about this woman, and it's the, the cultural aspect that we need to read behind the scenes here. So the woman is coming in the middle of the day to get water from a well by herself. Two signs that even in her own tribe, she is not accepted. Because typically, women would come early in the morning in a large group to get water before the, the day got really hot to have water for the rest of the day. So Jesus knows this woman's coming by herself in the middle of the day. So even within her own tribe, she's not accepted. So again, he has a third advantage here. He is, even, even though he's not totally accepted in his own tribe because they murdered him, right? Uh, at least some people like him, but this woman is an outcast. So he has these three distinct advantages with this woman in this religious conversation about how my religion's good and yours is not good. It's bad. It's evil. It's wrong. But Jesus did not use those to his advantage. He did not bully this woman. He didn't use those things that culturally could have, should have, to prove his point or make her feel inferior. He actually talked, he engages with her. He listens to her. He responds. They actually have a dialogue here. That's crazy. He asks her tough questions, but then he's honest with her. And here's the key. Because he reacted and responded, interacted with her in a way that was culturally odd, but yet the way of Jesus, it opened up doors. And she was open with him and started talking. She didn't shut down. She didn't, you know, avoid him. She just said, yeah, let's engage. You, you seem like a nice guy. This is weird. How did this happen? And so then, but then his disciples come back and they see what's going on. They're like really weirded out, okay? So verse 27, just then his disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman. Oh my goodness. And a Samaritan woman. Oh my goodness. But none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Or why are you talking to her? You see, his disciples are very much aware of the tribalism going on here. They're very much aware. This is weird. This is not how things work around here, Jesus. Don't you know that this is not appropriate? This is not normal. You shouldn't be engaging in this way. But Jesus doesn't really care what's normal or acceptable uh, or status quo because it's not the best way. It's not his way. And so he, he has this conversation, and the, here's the big reveal. He tells her near the end of the conversation that he's the Messiah, 
the one that they've all been waiting for. He declares that he, he's that guy. And he proves it to her by telling her things about herself that he has no way of knowing, right? He knows that she's had multiple failed relationships and that she's in a really terrible one right now. He knows these personal, he's just met her, right, like five minutes ago, and yet he's telling her deep, dark secrets that maybe even her neighbors don't know. And she's like, I get, okay, I, I buy in, I get it, you must be this guy that you claim to be. So what she does is she then runs back into town and tells everyone, hey, you'll never guess who I met. I met the Messiah. And they're like, what? And she says, yeah, he told me things about me that you guys don't know. It's amazing, you got to come meet him. So what happens is then Jesus is invited to stay in Samaria for two more days to teach and preach and minister. If Jesus had responded normally the way that he is supposed to, this door of opportunity never would have opened for him. He never would have engaged with this woman in the way that would have softened her heart and then opened her heart and then opened the whole community to this, ooh, he's like a tribal leader of an opposing tribe. He's a teacher in this other tribe. We don't want him here, but because he responded to this woman of a different religious view than he had, it, made all, it gave him really supernatural access to a place that otherwise is totally cut off. I wonder if we can learn a lesson from that interaction from Jesus. I wonder if we can learn to see the way that he saw. Now let's look at how Jesus interacted with someone from a different political view. Ooh, okay. And we're going to flip the script here because this time Jesus is not in the position of power. He's in the inferior position here. So we know that after the Last Supper, this Passover with his disciples, he's arrested late at night. He's taken before the high priest, this council of religious leaders. They find him guilty of blasphemy because he claims to be divine. He claims to be God. They have a problem, though. They can't really kill anyone right now. And so they take him to the Roman authorities and say, hey, this guy's broken one of our laws. Could you guys kill him for us? And it's, it's cool. It's great, right? It makes total sense. And so they take him before this guy named Pontius Pilate, not like an airplane, airplane pilot. You know, it's spelled differently, but still the, the idea is there. So Pontius Pilate. So he obviously is a pretty high-ranking Roman official. He's going to have way differing views than Jesus does, like not even close, not even close at all. And yet we see another interaction here, another conversation here. And it proves very valuable for Jesus in a way, but we'll see the point here. So John 18, 37, after they talk for a little bit, Pilate asked him this question, basically to see if he's going to live or not. Pilate said, so you are a king. Because here's the problem. Pilate doesn't care if Jesus claims to be God. That doesn't bother him at all. We got multiple gods. You can just be one of them. We don't care. The problem is if he claims to be king... That would mean he is going to overthrow Caesar. That, that's the problem here with Pilate. I don't care what you claim about your religion, but if you're going to claim to overthrow the government, now we got a problem. So we asked him this question, are you a king? Jesus responded, you say I am a king. Actually, here's the real answer, I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. All who love the truth recognize that what I say is true. And Pilate asked this very deep question we've all been asking ever since. What is truth? Then he went out again to the people and told them, here's what Pilate said, he is not guilty of any crime. That's important. He says, but you have a custom of asking me to release one prisoner each year at Passover. Would you like me to release this king of the Jews? But they shouted back, no, not this man. We want Barabbas. And then John tells us Barabbas was a revolutionary. 
So, Barabbas is guilty of trying to overthrow the government. And Jesus here, in this calm, civil conversation, proves his innocence. And so Pilate's like, I'm going to really need to let this guy go because I'm going to feel really bad if he gets killed and I know he's innocent. So he tries to do the right thing. He tries to release an, a cr- career criminal, Barabbas, and the mob says, no, you can release him to the public, no problem. This really you know, calm, innocent-looking teacher, kill him instead. It's just how crazy the people are about wanting him dead. So Jesus, again, has options here in talking with someone of a different political view. And I try to put myself in this position, and I don't know that I would do what Jesus did at all. Uh, So what he could do is what we like to call, he could speak truth to power. You know, you've heard that a lot. Jesus could have done that. He has really nothing to lose here. He knows he's probably going to be killed no matter what he says or does. So why not go off the bang? Why not tell Pilate what you really think about him? Why not really tell him what you really think, where that Roman government, what they can stick, you know, their their Roman government? You just tell him. Why not? He's going to kill you anyway. Just let him know. Just give a piece of your mind. You know, just tell him off. He could have done that. He's in a position where maybe that's his only option. If he gets people outside hearing him, they're going to join. Yeah, let's overthrow. He's doing it. He's doing it, guys. He's going to overthrow the government. Maybe, right? That option is right there on the table. But he doesn't do that. He thoughtfully engages in dialogue with this very powerful man of a differing political viewpoint. He doesn't try to say, hey, your way is really wrong. Have you ever reconsidered your whole life plan here? It's really rotten. He doesn't do that. He doesn't get personal in this way at all. And what his approach did is it showed this powerful political person his innocence. So if he tries to tell him what he thinks and, you know, about your stinking government and blah, 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 he's going to prove he's probably not innocent. And he, so he knows, no, that's not the way to do this. That's not the path I need to take. So his approach put with someone from a different political view worked in his favor because even though he was innocent, the mob cried for blood, and Pilate's in a weird position now. I know he's innocent. I know he shouldn't die. But if they get out of control, I'm going to die, and so I'm going to choose me over him. That's kind of what he does. However, I wonder if we can learn anything from the approach of Jesus here. I wonder if we can learn anything about how to view people from opposing political viewpoints, no matter how powerful or not that they are, that we can approach them differently than what everybody else seems to think is normal. Let's look at one more for just a minute here. And that's, so again, we start out by saying Jesus says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Does Jesus actually follow through and do that himself? I think he does. So Luke 23, after he is handed over, you know, Pilate says, okay, you're going to choose this career criminal. He's going to go out and do some terrible things, guys. This is on you. In another gospel, it actually records that Pilate goes to a basin of water by an open window and washes, physically washes his hands to tell the people, this is on you guys. I know this guy's innocent. You know this guy's innocent, but I'm going to give in to the mob here. So he's trying to absolve himself here. So even though he's innocent, he's found guilty by his own tribe, and by opposing tribes. He's got no way to win here. So again, he is condemned to crucifixion, one of the most brutal forms of torture, death ever in the history of mankind. He carries this huge wooden cross through the street, up a hill, where then he's nailed hand and feet to this cross. And while he's there suffocating to death, what does he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That does not happen right now politically. 
That is not our normal reaction to opposing people who are persecuting us or making fun of our views or our religion or our beliefs or we think they're so evil, they're terrible. Instead, what Jesus would have done if he were me, he'd say, Father, get them. And that's what he would, that's what Stephen Jesus would have done. So you guys are all out of luck because salvation, it's over, it's done. Like people are even saying, come off the cross, you know, you say you can't, and he could have. That's what makes the death of Jesus so important. He is God in flesh. He had all ability to, to just pull the nails out and float down and zap them all. Like he's got that within him to do that. Uh, he has a direct line to a guy that can just crater the whole thing. And that's what I would have done, right? That's what most of us probably would have done. But what does he say? He reacts differently, doesn't he? Even to his persecutors, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't really know what they're doing. They think they know, but they really don't know. So whether it was Jesus talking to someone with a different religious view at a well, whether he was talking to someone from a different political view when he had nothing to lose, or even when he was being severely mistreated, abused, and even murdered, he absolutely practiced this idea of loving your neighbor, loving your enemy, praying for those who persecute you. He fought the urge to engage in tribalism by instead engaging with individuals. That was the key to Jesus' approach. So I believe that we can and should do the same. So the question as we close today is, how do we follow this example of Jesus and fight tribalism where we live, right here, right now? How do we do that? And it comes to this idea I want to share for just a minute as we close. I want us to understand that people take positions, but people are not positions. So typically what we do is we, see, we, we don't see the person that we're against or that we're arguing with or that we think is evil. We just see the position that they believe in or that they hold or that they take or the R or the D after their name on television. Well, they're obviously good. Well, they're obviously evil. That's all. We, we, one letter, right? And we just condemn them or we exalt them to some place of prominence because of how they vote or what they decide to do, or what they believe in. Now, we'll talk about this in the final week. Not all ideas are equal. I'll grant you that. There are some really bad ideas. There are some that are much better, but we have to look through the politics and see the people. That's what Jesus chose to do, see people over politics, see people over position. Pope Francis uh, said this, if our hearts are closed... If our hearts are made of stone, the stones find their way into our hands and we are ready to throw them. So we typically do that. We approach people politically, socially with positions. And so our hearts become hardened. We come like stone and then we're ready to take that stone and throw it at the other tribe. But instead, the way of Jesus is engage with the person. See the flesh and blood right there that is a person with a soul that God made and God loves just as much as he made and loved each and every one of us. Even if they differ religiously, even if they differ politically, right? And I, I say that in jest because it's so easy to fall into this trap. Our culture has just set this up for us to fall into tribalism, to see Oh, that's a position, not a person. Oh, no, no, that's a political view, not a person. No, there's a person behind that view. It's our natural human inclination to really dehumanize people. So we have to fight this inclination. But it takes patience to do that. It takes practice to do that. 
It takes intentionality to do that because, again, everybody around us nearly is giving in to the other way, the less good way, the non-Jesus way. But we're called to do something different if we're a follower of Jesus. If we're going to follow him, let's even follow him in this realm of social issues, politics, positions, all that. We have to see the person and not just the position. So let's strive to do that. Put people above politics, above views, above positions to really reach them. Again, Jesus had access and things happened that weren't normal because he behaved in a way that wasn't normal. So I believe we can see the same thing as we do the same thing that Jesus did see people over politics and positions and engage in this way of Jesus.